Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Rick Edelman on the future of your wealth management practice. It's a conversation with the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. We often talk about how the wealth management industry landscape has evolved, but the fact of the matter is every industry has been impacted by dramatic change, and each year those transformations advance more rapidly than the years prior. And the guest on this episode is someone who rode these waves of change and served as both a leader and navigator. Rick Edelman is one of the most influential people in the financial planning and investment management profession, a career path that started in the 80s when he and his wife founded Edelman Financial Services. And after growing the business in a series of mergers and acquisitions, the firm now known as Edelman Financial Engines would become the largest RIA in the country with $191 billion in assets under management. Yet as Rick shares, providing financial education was the driving force that led their wide-ranging success. For example, Rick became one of the top 100 radio talk show hosts in the country and produced award-winning specials for PBS2. He's also the number one New York Times bestselling author of 12 books on personal finance, including his newest, The Truth About Crypto, an Amazon bestseller. And he's the host of the podcast series, The Truth About Your Future, and the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. Plus, Rick ranked three times as the number one independent financial advisor in the nation by Barron's and received the Industry's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017. Rick has a unique lens on the industry, so we're thrilled to have him on the show today to give us a candid perspective on the evolving wealth management space and his predictions for what lies ahead. So let's get to it. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Louis. Thank you. I've been following you since when I started in the industry, so I've got to admit, I'm a little bit nervous and starstruck to have you on today. Well, I appreciate that very much, but <laughs> not at all necessary. <laughs> Excellent. So I think most people know who Rick Edelman is, but we'd love for you just to share your background and what led you to become a financial advisor in the first place. Well, in hindsight, our background is 
quite unique. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what we ultimately learned. Uh, my background is in communications. That's what my degree is in. I used to brag, frankly, I still do, that I graduated college without ever having taken a business course. And I think that actually served me really well. I wasn't brainwashed by economics professors and accounting and business uh, professors uh, as to how money is supposed to work. Instead, I was trained as a journalist. And journalists are taught basically to do two things. First, ask smart questions. And two, explain the answers in plain English. And those two things really uh, helped a lot as I uh, embarked in the financial services field, which was frankly inadvertent and accidental. It was never my intention to get involved in this industry. My wife and I were young, newly married, and like all other newlyweds, we were interested in buying a home. And I was writing as a journalist in the financial trade press, so I knew enough to realize that there are these folks out there called financial advisors. I ought to go talk with one and get their advice on how we can buy a house. This advisor, by the way, footnote, refused to meet with my wife, Jean. That spoke volumes um, from a, a sexism perspective. That's another story. Talk to my wife about that. She'll give you uh, lots of views on that issue. But in the course of our dialogues, this advisor ended up telling us to commit a felony. He told us to lie on our mortgage application in order to qualify for the loan. First of all, the advisor should have told us the truth. We weren't ready to buy a house. We weren't financially in shape to do that. But instead, he told us to lie in order to get the mortgage. We were so outraged by his so-called advice that we decided, you know what, we're going to teach ourselves how this works, and then we're going to teach others what we've learned. So I quit my job and got myself licensed and entered the field. My wife quit her job and went to work for Payne Weber in their back office to learn the operational side of the business. And we started our own little financial planning firm back in 1986 with that exact premise. Let's teach people what we've learned. And word spread that we were really good communicators. We were really good at helping people understand these complex, complicated subjects that people have little to no knowledge about and virtually no education about in a manner that is in their best interest, helping them deal with issues that they're facing every day. Predominantly, people who are like us, young, with not a lot of money, who don't have access to high-quality financial advisors and lawyers and accountants and whatnot. And word spread, and the firm grew as we were accommodating demand for our services. We began by doing college planning seminars for elementary school PTA groups, talking to parents in their 20s, 30s, and who have young children about the need to save for college. And we ended up doing those seminars for pretty much every elementary school in the Washington, D.C. area where we were living. Word spread. I got invited onto the radio. Eventually, they offered me my own show. I ended up hosting my radio show for 32 years. Uh, was named one of the top 100 most important talk show hosts in the country by Talkers Magazine. That led to television shows, and I've hosted a variety of series for PBS and others, and that led to writing books. I'm the best-selling personal financial advisor author. I'm the number one New York Times best-selling author with 12 books, 1.2 million copies in print in a dozen languages, hundreds of seminars a year. We've spoken to, I think we've calculated a million people over the 40 years we were doing this. So our attitude was just, we're going to grow our business to accommodate the demand from consumers seeking our help. And that led us to being coming the biggest 
investment advisory firm in the country. There's a lot there. And I have to ask, when you and your wife went to found Edelman Financial in 1986, did you have a vision of creating this mega firm? Or was it really just, let's just try to help as many people as we can? Because there's some people that they're like, I'm going to envision my success and I'm envisioning that I'm going to be the top advisor in the industry. Did you have that type of mindset or was it just one foot in front of the other and things kind of started to snowball from there? No, we did not have any grandiose ideas. I still have the original business plan that I drafted as we embarked on our effort. And that business plan called for us having a profit of $3,000 per month. What we figured was all we needed to sustain our lifestyle was earning 36 grand a year. And it was never about becoming biggest, those grandiose ideas. Whenever I come upon somebody who has such a goal, they never achieve it because it's too much work. It's too hard. The risks are too great. The sacrifices are too large and they quit. That wasn't our goal. Our goal was simply to help people who wanted our help. And our attitude was, we will serve them. And if the demand for our services exceeds our capacity, then we'll grow our capacity to meet the demand. And when the demand stops, our growth will stop. Well, for 34 years, our growth never stopped. The demand never stopped. So we grew simply out of need to serve our clients. And the fact that that growth ultimately led us to being the fastest growing firm in the country, according to Inc. Magazine, and also the largest firm. And according to Consumer Reports, the number one firm in the country for quality, that was all accidental. We weren't trying to achieve those accolades. We were just had our heads down, doing our work, serving our clients. And you turn around one day and we're like, wow, look what we built. Yeah, it's amazing. And you hit on some of this, but I'm sure every listener is eager to hear how you grew the business to become the largest RA in the country, to be named the number one Barron's independent advisor. And I don't think there's an advisor in the country who doesn't know who Rick Edelman is. So I know there's a lot to achieving these levels of success, but can you share a few tactics or, or strategies that propelled your growth? Well, I would say number one is the fact that we focused on financial education. That has been the cornerstone of our business from day one because uh, that was what propelled us. We didn't get the advice that we needed from the advisor we sought out, and we didn't understand much of what he was talking about because we ourselves at the time didn't have much knowledge about this subject. And that's true of most Americans. I mean, think about it. People grow up with mom and dad never talking about money. It's the only taboo topic left at the kitchen table. Parents will talk to their kids about sex, drugs, politics, but won't talk about money. There's no education K through 12. Most college students graduate without ever taking a personal finance course and employers have nothing to say other than sign these 401k papers. So people grow up financially illiterate. And because of that, they don't know how to handle the everyday financial decisions they're facing, choosing a credit card, opening a bank account, filing your taxes, choosing life insurance, opening a 401k, buying a house, getting a mortgage, writing a will, all of these issues that we deal with, we are totally unprepared to because we are financially illiterate. So we built our 
practice on education. And we began by doing seminars and we did them throughout our entire careers. That's why I did radio and TV and wrote books. It was all about teaching people how money works and how to make it work for them. So that we've learned is a very different approach. Most advisors don't want to take the time to explain to their clients what they're recommending and why and how things work. So that made us different. The other thing that made us different is who we were willing to serve. Most advisors are only willing to serve rich people because it's only rich people who can afford to pay the fee that the advisor wants to earn. We didn't do that. We took the attitude that we will take as a client anyone who's willing to be a client. Meaning, if you're willing to ask for our help and you're willing to follow our advice, then we're willing to help you without any regard to how much money you might have or don't have. If you don't have any money at all, we'll treat you as a pro bono case and we'll work with you for free. So we had a very low account minimum, $5,000. Most advisors have million-dollar minimums, and we're willing to serve anyone who wants our help. And we found that that was very different as well. Over time, we discovered how significant that really is, that there really is nobody out there. That has changed a little bit in the last few years, but for the bulk of our 30-plus year career, nobody was willing to help the so-called mass affluent because they didn't have enough money to benefit the firms. But that was ultimately the issue, is that we were not focused on ourselves. We weren't trying to emphasize the money we wanted to earn. We were focusing solely on the people who needed our help, the 99% of Americans who don't have access to advice. And we discovered that by focusing on them, we ended up doing just fine. Yeah, it sounds like it was it was a higher calling you had to start with the education and to help anyone who needed your advice. It sounds almost like obviously you've um, the profession's been great for you personally and everything you've achieved, but that you were doing it more as not not as charity, but you're doing it for the greater good and kind of had the mindset: my job is to help people, my job is to educate people. And ultimately, that propelled your success, was focusing on that rather than, I want to make $10,000 per client relationship, or I want to grow at 50% per year. Is that accurate? Yes, very much so. And you know, the more you focus on others, if you simply take care of them, you'll be taken care of. It's really that simple. And interestingly, what I considered, and, and my wife as well, considered our clients were not the clients of the firm but the financial planners of the firm, they are our clients because we knew if we took care of the planners and we took care of our staff, they would take care of the clients the way that we wanted them cared for. So our clients were the people who were working for us. And that by extension led to fabulous client service, which is what everybody was looking for. And we weren't terribly focused on what's in it for us. That took care of itself. We feel the same way. That's that's the way we run our business. If you do right by people, good things follow. And don't chase the money, but chase the result. So I think many folks are familiar with your 30-plus year run on the radio. Um, it was a weekly show that was syndicated across the country. I'm curious how being on the radio helped your business. So if you can quantify, I don't know, number of clients or even just going with your gut, like how much of new business coming in over the years was from the radio show? It's impossible to say. You know, we did everything everywhere. I was on radio and television. I was, uh, I've been on every major news network. I was on Oprah five times. I'm a number one New York Times bestselling author of a dozen books. I do hundreds of seminars a year, thousands over the decades. I once had the opportunity to have a conversation with the 
chief marketing officer of Coca-Cola, who was lamenting that his budget was only a billion dollars a year. And we were just joking about the fact that Coke's everywhere. I mean, this is probably one of the best known brands on the planet. And he was acknowledging that fact. And I said, well, how do you evaluate your ad spend? How do you know whether something's working? And he said, we don't even bother trying to find out because it's impossible to know. Coca-Cola is everywhere. How can we say this is the reason you decided to buy a Coke today. And we learned the same thing. When we would ask clients, how did you hear about us? They would say, oh, I've heard you on the radio. I went to one of your seminars. I read one of your books. A neighbor of mine is a client of yours. So how do I grant credit for the source of that new client? It's impossible. What we learned is that by doing lots of everything, you become Coca-Cola. I love it. Yeah, I would agree with, with your approach. So let's talk about the uh, about Edelman Financial. So Edelman was a public company, which is a major accomplishment in itself for a few years. And then in 2012, was taken private by the private equity fund, Lee Equity Partners, and then later sold a majority stake to Hellman and Freeman, another private equity firm. Can you talk a little bit about this chain of events and what each transaction helped you accomplish? Well, you started with number three. There have been six transactions so far. There will be seven. I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually sold the company six times. <laughs> so, and there will be a seventh transaction before we're done. The first transaction was in 2005 when we sold a piece of the business to Sanders Morris Harris, an investment bank out of Texas. Gene and I realized that if we were going to serve more people, we had really reached capacity in our one office in Fairfax, Virginia. And if we were going to continue to meet demand, which we were increasingly getting from around the country, we needed to open additional offices. Our ability to serve people long distance really wasn't as viable. I mean, the whole work from home thing didn't exist way back then. So, so we realized we needed to go national, but to do that required a lot of capital. And it also required expertise and experience that we didn't have. We'd always operated one location. So we realized we needed help. And so we went searching and found George Ball, who was the CEO of Sanders Morris Harris. George is also the former CEO of EF Hutton and former chair of Prudential Titan on Wall Street. And we realized that this is the guy who can really help give us the guidance and mentoring we need to go national and also the capital to do so. So we did a deal with Sanders Morris Harris. They were a publicly traded investment bank out of Texas, owned dozens of, of companies. And I became CEO of their business. We renamed it the Edelman Financial Group, and I therefore became the first publicly traded financial advisor in the country. Well, we were listed on NASDAQ. And I pretty quickly hated being a public company CEO. It's so distracting. Sarbanes-Oxley is such a nuisance. doesn't serve anybody's best interests other than accountants and regulators. It doesn't serve consumer protection in the least. And it's a massive financial burden and a major distraction being publicly traded. So I realized we needed to go private. So we did a deal with Lee Equity that you mentioned to go private. And then we traded up, I would say, traded away Lee Equity for Hellman and Freeman, one of the largest private equity firms. And then in 2018, we had Hellman and Freeman acquire financial engines. We merged their company into ours, turning us into the largest by far 
REA in the country with more than $250 billion in assets under management. The company just announced yesterday, in fact, that we've now added a new CEO, Jay Shah, from Personal Capital, who takes over in August. It's a, a, a massive chain of events. Most firms, they, they have one transaction, so not to mention that many. I'm curious, does any part of you now, with a very strong hindsight bias, no doubt, think about what it would have been like to just keep running completely independent. So to have not done the first transaction back in the mid 2000s, and then going public and then with your various private equity sponsors, do you think your business could have been a viable entity if you stayed completely private and at no point along the way took capital? Maybe. Impossible to know, of course. But I do know that we would most likely not be serving as many clients. We would not have had the liquidity events that we've had. And those liquidity events were not only important for Gene and me personally, but also equally important for our financial advisors and staff, all of whom have equity in the company. Gene and I have always been very careful to provide equity to everybody in the business, to help them share in the results of their hard work, and to demonstrate appreciation for their successes. And those liquidity events are even more important for them than for Gene and me. And none of that would have been possible. Uh, you end up with concentration risk. People used to ask me way back when, you know, Rick, what do you invest in? And I used to joke, I invest in a highly speculative growth stock. That's not what you would tell a client to do is to concentrate their entire net worth in the fortunes of a single business. Yet that's what we were doing. That's what every entrepreneur does. You get to a point where the business is so big that that's not prudent anymore. It's just bad financial planning. So we've followed our own advice and diversified. That sounds exactly right. Yeah, most advisors, they're largest financial holding is an illiquid asset on their personal balance sheet, which is the the equity or the personal goodwill in their business. So that is a motivator for many folks is to take some chips off the table and then access a pool of capital and expertise to propel the business further. But obviously it, there's trade-offs and giving up some upside potential and control is part of it. But in your case, it seems like the outside capital was fuel that needed to be put on the fire to grow it into what it is today. Exactly. You can let the firm get big and big and big and big, but how big is big? I mean, you get to the point where hamburgers are only so thick and cars are only so fast. I mean, <laughs> at some point you're just keeping score. Are you really improving your life? Are you improving the lives of those around you, your advisors, your staff, your clients? And at what point are you going to liquidate, monetize? And at what point are you going to recognize that the organization is now bigger than you and you have a responsibility for ensuring its perpetuity so that the firm is no longer dependent on just you, that it can operate independently for the sake of everybody's careers whose lives they've entrusted to you and all of the clients and all the assets they've also entrusted to you. So, you know, it, it can't always be about you. One last question for you on the, the topic of Edelman Financial, and then the rest of the conversation would be about, I guess, your act two, three, four, whatever the, the number is, but away from Edelman. Fairly recently, you sunsetted your role as CEO of Edelman Financial to focus on your other endeavors and passions. Why did you decide to step away? And was it hard after being in the, the big seat for so long to, to step down? Well, sure, it's hard. This has been our baby for our almost entire adult lives. And yeah, of course it was difficult, but necessary. We realized this was going to be occurring. And so working with Hellman and Friedman, we mapped out a, a long 
execution of this, we began working on this back in 2016. And that's when I stepped away from the CEO role, remained as chairman in order to facilitate that. That was augmented by the acquisition and merger of financial engines in 2018. And at this point, I'm simply on the board and still the biggest individual shareholder, but I'm not engaged in the company's activities at at all these days. Back then in 2016, as we were beginning to do this, we were recognizing that walking away from the firm meant that we were creating a void. And we all know that nature abhors a vacuum. So in the absence of our activities in the firm that we've been doing for the past 35 years, what are we going to do instead? Where is our future going to lie? I have had a variety of other interests over the years. I've become known as somewhat of, of a futurist in the financial services industry, always trying to look ahead. What's in front of us? Where's the world going? So that the advice we're giving our clients is the advice that they need for the future they're going to have, as opposed to the past, which might have worked for their parents or grandparents. That led to my 11th book, The Truth About Your Future. And I was spending a lot of time with exponential technologies, AI, robotics, big data, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, fintech, edtech, agtech, and crypto, blockchain, and digital assets. So I created several new ventures back in 2016. The first one was DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. This is a crypto education company for financial advisors and now consumers. We launched the certificate in blockchain and digital assets two years ago, which now has thousands of people from 37 countries who have gone through this course. And it teaches you what this is because crypto is something everybody's heard of. Some actually own, but few can explain. And it's one of the most important technological innovations uh, for the future. So is generative AI, most famously ChatGPT. This is a hugely important technological advancement, as are so many other areas, particularly in the area of medicine and health. In innovations such as the human genome, the, the human cell atlas, uh, focused ultrasound, these are revolutionary technologies that are going to transform health, wellness, and longevity over the next decade and longer. So we've been spending a lot of time with these subjects, and I built another company, The Truth About Your Future. I converted my weekly radio show into a daily podcast, which you can access everywhere you get your podcasts, uh, The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman. And that's also a variety of webinars, newsletters, uh, and uh, seminars and, and conferences and such. We do an awful lot of consulting these days where other firms are turning to us for, for help with their branding, sales and marketing strategy in the crypto field, the financial services industry. Uh, and we uh, do a lot of philanthropic activities, mostly with Rowan University, our alma mater, uh, where we're the benefactors of the uh, Fossil Park and Museum, the Planetarium, and uh, the College of Communication and Creative Arts, all of which have been named after us. Uh, and so we're, we're pretty busy with a, a variety of different ventures. We also own an Alzheimer's research company. That's one of our major philanthropic activities uh, and uh, several other activities to keep us busy because the one thing we realize is that we grew up in my generation where there is no work-life balance. You work to live and 
when you lose work, when you lose or leave that career uh, from retirement, um, you have a huge empty void. Many people have their social network associated with their careers. And what happens when you lose the career? You lose the social network. And loneliness is now a national epidemic, according to the Surgeon General. Uh, and so we need to figure out how to reinvent ourselves in the next chapter of our lives when we're in our 50s and 60s and 70s. And Gene and I are embarking on this, and that's our big part of our journey now is helping others through this transition as they realize that whatever they've been doing the last 30 or 40 years is going to come to an end. They have to figure out what's next. And that's uh, we're on that journey ourselves, and we're working hard to help people uh, do the same. I think most folks would say, I, I picked up golf. Uh, it doesn't seem like you have much time for that. You got your hands full with everything else you're doing. Yeah. And let's face it, there are very few people who can fill their time truly playing golf every day. You might do it for months or a year or two, but after a while, really? And what if physical ailment interferes with your ability to do that? What do you do next? And how is that providing fulfillment? The real key to staying young and healthy is to keep active, to stay engaged, to participate in community and society. And economically, an increasing number of retirees need to work for income because they haven't saved enough to support their lifestyles. So golf is great. Travel is great. Gardening is great. You need to really decide if you can make a second career out of those activities or whether that needs to be supplemented by something else. Right. And a topic you're passionate about and cover extensively on the Truth About Your Future daily podcast is the future of financial planning. So I'll ask you, um, instead of just the future of the financial world, since this show is mostly listened to by financial advisors and practitioners, what do you envision as the future of the financial planning industry or the wealth management industry at large? Big question, but I'm sure you got a good answer. Well, it's going to grow dramatically. Money makes the world go round, let's face it. And this industry is responsible for the management of that money on behalf of the people who own it and to grow that capital. And with luck, the people who own those assets will deploy them for the benefit of, of their families and society overall. So it's a huge growth industry and always has been. Most importantly, the reason that this is such a bull market for the advisors in particular is because of two factors that are occurring at the same time. The first is that the over 65 population is growing. We're retiring 10,000 baby boomers a day, and it is the largest cohort, and the boomers are the ones with all the money. Um, so there's a massive amount of wealth by the, uh, the over 55 population, uh, and, um, people are living longer than ever before because of those medical advances that I alluded to. And this means that you need to make sure more than ever that your money lasts as long as you do. If you're going to live into your nineties and hundreds, which is increasingly likely, you need to make sure your money lasts as long as you do. That's very different from our grandparents who retired at 62 and were dead at 65. So this requires the need for advice more than ever by more people than ever. But while that is going on, the number of advisors is radically shrinking. 10 years ago, there were 400,000 financial advisors. Today, there are 300,000. 
and 10 years from now, there will be 200,000. Because just as the population is aging, so is the population of advisors. They're aging as well, and they're retiring. And there aren't nearly enough younger people coming into the profession to replace them. Financial planning, investment management isn't a sexy field. A lot of kids in business school coming out of college want to go to Wall Street. They want to get into investment banking, which they perceive to be more exciting, more sexy, and more lucrative. And so we don't have as many advisors as we're going to need. And that means that the advisors who are there are going to be in what we'll call a target-rich environment. There will be a massive number of consumers needing their help far exceeding their ability to serve. So it's great news for the financial services industry because of you know the whole supply-demand equation is in the industry's favor. It's going to be a challenge for consumers going forward, but this is going to be a very exciting couple of decades. At the same time, technology is going to be changing everything for advisors. You cannot ignore ChatGPT. You cannot ignore blockchain. These technologies are radically upending the way we invent financial products, the way that we manage practices. So advisors need to embrace these technologies and get ahead of them to learn how to incorporate them into their practices. Otherwise, the advisors will become quickly obsolete and they'll be out of business. I agree with your takes and they're backed up by data, but specifically, how do we address the topic of there's a dwindling number of financial advisors and more folks than ever needing financial advice? What's the solution? Well, the financial uh, advisory community, you know, and everybody from Merrill Lynch to Schwab to the CFA Institute and the CFP board, everybody has to go to the college level and go to those universities and encourage them to create curriculum leading to degrees in financial planning. There are several universities that do this, but not enough of them. They need to make the case when they go to recruitment events that colleges hold as you're trying to hire juniors and seniors to explain what this industry is all about and why it is worthy of consideration by that graduate. There's a stigma in our industry, which emanates from the old days when it was nothing but a bunch of stockbrokers and insurance agents peddling product for fat commission, frankly, with deceptive sales practices along the way. We need to help people realize that this is no longer that, that the financial planning profession is a profession, the same as law and accounting. And by that notion, it's a nurturing profession that has an incredible impact on the lives of their clients. And it is one that is not only incredibly fulfilling, but also financially rewarding. Uh, and that message has to get out. And until that happens, you're not going to see very many wanting to enter the field, or at least not in the numbers we need. I agree with you. I'm curious how you see chat GPT or the topic of, of generative AI changing the industry. So if we were doing this podcast two years from now or three years from now, whatever time period you want to talk about, how do you think those technologies are going to change the day-to-day -day of being a financial advisor? Our industry has been under evolution for decades and decades. When I started in this business, and I'll date myself with this, back in the 1980s, Clients would call me on the phone to find out the price of a stock because that's the only way you could find out by calling your broker. And many brokerage firms 
Payne Weber, Merrill, E.F. Hutton, all the big firms of the day, they had lobbies in their offices that were huge, lots of sofas and seats. And clients would come in and spend hours in the lobby because in the lobby they had up on the wall a massive ticker, the kind you see scrolling across the bottom of the screen on CNBC these days. That ticker used to be in the lobby. It was the only way for investors to see what was going on in the market. It was either that or call your broker on the phone. Well, today, nobody calls their broker to find out the price of IBM. That information is readily available in real time for free on your phone. So advisors used to be the bastions of information. We aren't anymore. That information's out there for free. What do we do? Did that put us all out of business? No. The nature of brokers shifted to become advisors. It's no longer, what's the price of the stock? The question is now, what do I do about that? In the future, it's going to morph even further to answering the question, what does it mean for me? It's the analysis of the data and the application of it to the individual unique circumstances of the client. That's where the value of the advisor is going to shine in the future. Many advisors have already been behaving in this manner over the past decade or two, but it's going to become far more significant going forward. And this is going to be aided and supported by ChatGPT. The AI is going to be able to grab the data, parse it, and provide elements around it All the grunt work of data collection and analysis will be done by the machines. So if you were a a securities analyst, I'd be very fearful for job obsolescence because AI is going to do your job faster, more accurately, and far cheaper than you. So we're going to see a radical shift in the workload of the advisor, but it's going to allow the advisor to do things that it will take the tech a while before it's capable of doing all that. But it's all coming. We're already seeing advisors use ChatGPT to write emails to clients, to create social postings, to design PowerPoint presentations for seminars. Pretty soon, you're going to use this tech in audio files. I already did that on one of my podcasts. I had ChatGPT write the script for one of my podcasts, and then I went to Eleven Labs, which is a synthetic audio company, and had it record the script in my voice. And I played it on my podcast, and it fooled everybody. Nobody knew that it wasn't me who wrote it, and it wasn't me performing it. And the whole thing took me less than five minutes and cost less than $5. So any advisor anywhere is going to be able to create not just audio files, but video as well, where consumers are not going to know that they're not really hearing or looking at their advisor. Eventually, it's going to be used for clients calling in, asking questions. AI is going to be the one answering the question, but it's going to be your face and your voice that the client is responding to. So all of this is going to be evolving very quickly. JP Morgan just announced that they're spending money to develop investment advice using iterative generational AI. So this technology is going to be growing by leaps and bounds, and it's going to change the investment advisory world. It's not going to eliminate it. It's not going to eliminate advisors. It's going to allow advisors to change how they spend their time so that they are spending their time on what clients truly value, and that's that interpersonal relationship. And advisors who don't learn how to champion this tech 
will become obsolete and they'll be gone. I mean, it sounds like a one, a very interesting and exciting future, but also a bit terrifying. I'm thinking, how is this going to change my profession? I think everyone has to ponder that. Well, there's no question. And in fact, that's one of the most important areas of advice for you to give clients as an advisor, which is career advice. It used to be college planning that mattered. Not anymore. College is rapidly becoming free. We don't have to worry about the cost of college going forward. What we have to worry about is career planning. Are you in a career that is going to exist in five years? Because the scientists are telling us that over the next decade, half of America's occupations will disappear, replaced by robotics and AI. So we've got to evaluate is your job going to be gone? Are you going to find yourself out of work because your company is no longer in business or your occupation within that company is no longer needed? And how do we retrain you into new occupational skills that are going to remain viable? Because although we're going to eliminate half of the jobs, we're going to invent an equal number of jobs, jobs that don't exist yet today. So we need to recognize the point you've just made, Lewis, which is that I've got to ask an internal question. Am I safe? Is my career safe? And if not, what do I need to do to stay safe or to reinvent myself? This is a key area of opportunity for advisors to demonstrate value to their clients. And if if you're an advisor, I mean, of course, everyone wants to say, I'm going to leverage that technology when it comes. That's not really an option yet. I mean, I guess in, in some applications, but not nearly to the extent that you're describing. If you're an advisor, how can you prepare today maybe in shifting your role or investing in your practice in a way that once this technology does take the world by storm even more, that the job and the the revenue streams are protected. Well, you need to start studying the tech. In the world of crypto, you need to get engaged with DACFP. You need to get your certificate in blockchain and digital assets. It's an online self-study course. You get 18 CE credits and it will give you the information you need to understand this technology so you can figure out how to adopt it into your practice management. And you need to do the same thing with with generative AI. Begin by asking ChatGPT, here's my occupation. What do I need to do to stay viable in the marketplace over the next decade? Let the tech itself give you the answer to the question. That's fascinating. And I'd like to talk a little bit about crypto because you mentioned the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, or DACFP. How do you see blockchain changing the industry? Well, it's all about tokenization. Everything is going to be tokenized over the next decade. Uh, It is the most revolutionary development in the financial services industry, probably since the advent of ETFs 30 years ago. It's all about tokenization. In other words, a token is a digital representation of a physical asset. Think about, and we've all heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and everybody looks at this crazy artwork, the Bored Apes, Yacht Club, the Crypto Kitties, Crypto Punks. Why would anybody pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a JPEG, for a piece of digital art that is frankly ugly art? Why would anybody do this? My answer is, I have no idea. I'm not going to try to justify or rationalize. (laughs) What I will do is look at the technology that allows this to happen. In other words, look at your driver's license. Why are we still carrying a piece of plastic in our, in our purse or wallet? That makes no sense. In the future, your driver's license will be an NFT. It'll be digital. It'll be something in your phone's wallet that is safer, more secure, 
easily readily available and easily transmittable. Your passport, the deed to your house, the title to your car, your employment records, your academic records, your medical records, all of these will be NFTs, allowing you to have greater access control over these assets. In the world of investments, it's going to grow by leaps and bounds. Right now, we have 15 or 20 major asset classes and market sectors. But think about it. We're already digitizing and tokenizing real estate. The St. Regis Hotel has been tokenized. You can buy the St. Regis coin. We call them shares if you're buying shares of IBM, but the real estate, we call them tokens. You can own a piece of that hotel. They're tokenizing buildings in Dubai. The global real estate market is three times bigger than the global stock market. Think about tokenizing all the commercial real estate around the world. Wouldn't it be cool to own a piece of the Empire State Building or the GM Building or the Eiffel Tower? We'll be able to do this. We're tokenizing exotic cars, rare wine, artwork. We're going to be able to tokenize everything. We're going to be able to tokenize salaries. Instead of being a fan of your favorite athlete, you'll be able to own a piece of their contract. And as their career succeeds, you'll enjoy the economic rewards. Your favorite Hollywood star, your Broadway performer, musicians, recording artists have been all selling their music catalogs. Bruce Springsteen got $500 million. Bob Dylan got $300 million. Pink Floyd, Stevie Nicks, Justin Bieber, they're all selling their music catalogs. The companies that are buying those catalogs, Sony Music, Warner Music, KKR, and other private equity funds, they're going to be selling as NFTs the individual songs. So the next time you hear Born to Run, you'll actually be able to be an owner of that music, not just a fan of it. So you'll earn a piece of the royalty. Instead of having 15 or 20 asset classes in the future, we're going to have 15 or 20,000 asset classes. The opportunity for true portfolio personification is going to go through the roof. And all of this is already underway. Franklin Templeton, one of the biggest fund companies in the world, $1.5 trillion in assets. They just bought Putnam for a billion dollars. They have already launched the on-chain U.S. government money market fund. This is a money market fund that is on the blockchain. You can access it via an app. It's called the Benji coin. Go download it from the Apple store or the Android store. And it operates just like a stable coin. By placing this on the blockchain, Franklin Templeton says they've been able to radically reduce the cost of operating the fund, and they've been able to radically speed up the ability to execute transactions. Over $270 million has already been invested in this fund. It's the first blockchain money market fund. Pretty soon, all mutual funds and ETFs will be tokenized. We're not going to have shares of ETFs anymore. We're going to have tokens of them. And this is a radical change in the product development, the product availability. We're demonetizing. We're providing liquidity. We're providing democratization of assets. This is going to be really, really exciting. And as an advisor, you're going to have to learn about this tech so that you are prepared for building the portfolio of the future for your client. It sounds like you really have to master what crypto is and what it isn't to be able to not only advise on on the asset class on, on should I hold Bitcoin, but also in mastering how it's going to impact products. Is there anything as far as the day-to-day of a financial advisor that you see changing because of of blockchain? 
absent, you should invest in this blockchain-based money market fund? Blockchain will be used as a very underlying fundamental element of business the way that photocopiers are. In many cases, it'll be invisible. The fact that your bank uses photocopiers in order to help them do what they do, you're not going to care. It's just going to be there. Blockchain technology is basically software that allows companies to collect and distribute data faster, cheaper, and safer than existing technologies allow. And that's why there's so much excitement about blockchain technology. It's just bigger, better software than what has previously been available. But this is going to be used by the custodians. It'll be used by the banks. It'll be used by the exchanges. It'll be behind the scenes. I mean, do you really know or care how the NYSE does what they do or DTCC? We all know they exist. We all know how important they are. But do we care how they're fundamentally doing what they're doing? Not really. But it's there and it's going to be ever present. So blockchain will become an integral part of your business. Most of it, you're not even going to notice. Where you do want to pay attention, as you've just pointed out, is in the investment management angle. Do I want to invest in these coins and tokens? Do I want to invest in ETFs that buy the stocks of companies that are building this technology and supporting the community? These are the questions that advisors are going to have to answer. And there's no better way to learn about this than from my book, The Truth About Crypto, or the certificate program at DACFP, or our vision conference, which is June 12 to 14 in Austin, a two-day event just for financial advisors who want to learn the latest about what's going on in the world of crypto. A lot to look forward to. Yeah, then I'm definitely going to have to become more of an avid listener of the Truth About Your Future podcast. I feel like if you're not understanding where the future is going, it's going to be hard to, to keep up and, and prepare. Yeah, and that's the kind of the challenge is that most advisors have been doing this for a really long time. You've been in the business for decades. You're managing a lot of money for a lot of clients. Everybody's happy and you're successful. And what you're now about to discover is that most of what you've learned is going to become obsolete because this whole new stuff of technological innovation is brand new and you don't know anything about it and you need to master it. Think back to when you got your CFP, when you were new in this industry, that's kind of where we're all at now. And those who jump ahead with this are going to be the ones that have leadership and who thrive in this industry. So the sooner you master this tech, the better off you and your clients are going to be. Yeah. Two more questions to bring us home. So you mentioned earlier, one of your, um, one of your statements was that you don't believe there's going to be enough financial advisors to, in its current form, keep up with the growing um, demand for financial advice. It, It sounds like though, through, AI through blockchain, through other technologies that aren't even around, that it's going to make the job of of a financial advisor that much more efficient so that an advisor can, in theory, work with more clients and not drop the level of service. Um, Do you think these technological innovations are an anecdote for the declining pool of advisors in the industry? To some degree, yes. I mean, look at the world of robo-advisors today. There are a lot of people who turn to those as opposed to human advisors, but they tend to be either lower net worth, lower income people, uh, or who have rather simplistic needs uh, as opposed to complicated circumstances. But as their lives 
become more complicated or as their net worth rises, they begin to realize that those technological answers aren't enough to solve their needs and they turn to humans. Uh, I think we're probably going to see a similar circumstance. So yes, I think you're right that the tech will allow you to be more productive. That should translate into you being able to handle more clients. But on the other hand, I don't know that that's going to be truly sufficient to eliminate the need for having more people in this industry than will exist. So last question to bring it home. Any advice for advisors who aspire to build a financial advisory empire like you did? What's what's the next best action that they can take? You've got to really identify why you want to build a large firm and understand what it takes to, to achieve scale. Way back in the beginning, I always admonished my team, I'm not interested in doing anything for any client. If I can't do it for a thousand clients, I don't want to do it for one. So we always built everything with scale in mind. And that's what you really want to emphasize. You want to replicate. Think about the biggest, most successful businesses and what made them so. It's not because the hamburgers are fabulous at McDonald's. That's not their key to their success. It's their scalability. And that is really what you're after. So evaluate how can you do what it is you want to do at scale. And that means you need likely to bring in people with a different set of skills than you have. And it's all about building that team and you providing that leadership to allow the team to execute on the mission. You're describing a whole nother master class on this, which is a whole nother conversation, but that's where I'd begin. All right. Well, we'll take you up on another conversation because I can tell we're just, we're just getting you warmed up on what the future of the, of the profession and the overall industry looks like. Anytime. Very good. Thank you so much, Rick. My pleasure. Thank you. Change is inevitable. And the most successful among us learn it's far less about managing change than it is about constantly reinventing. No doubt, Rick shared a perspective of more dramatic transformations ahead, yet having that knowledge gives us foresight in how to evolve our mindsets, practices, and businesses to meet the new challenges and opportunities. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973 476 8578, which is my cell, or my email, mdiamond at diamond consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. 
This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.